Two things before we begin. First of all, content warning for today's episode, forced outing. And second of all, we actually recorded this before we found out about the incredible, amazing news that Mark Oshiro will be co-writing a book about Nico D'Angelo with Rick Riordan. So make sure to go follow Mark Oshiro at Mark Does Stuff for more updates. Check out all of their other books. And if you want to hear us talk about this news the night we found out about it, you can check out the live on our Instagram. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Seaweed Brain. It's been a minute, but this is an episode. Morning edition. It is the morning edition. <laughs> wow. It's 9 a.m. It's not 9 a.m. for everyone. It's 9 a.m. for us. And we did it because this is an episode that we've been thinking about. This is an episode that has loomed large. It has certainly loomed large in the imaginations of our two guests, both of whom have requested foreign events to be here. <laughs> this episode is where we first meet Davison, an icon, but also it is the episode of Nico's... Um, Forced outing. Stick around. Welcome to Morning Edition of Seaweed Brain. You know, like Dr. Doofenshmirtz after hours. <laughs> that's that's like us right now, except for before hours. It's going to be a pretty intense episode this morning, and I don't know if it's going to be like cackling, chaotic, <laughs> intense, or like kind of sad, heavy, intense, but we'll see and we'll talk about it all as necessary. Today, we're joined by two special guests who, like Carter said, both um, specially requested many weeks ago to be here for these specific chapters. First up, we have Jackson. Hey, Jackson. Hi. So happy to be back. Uh, Yeah, this one's really personal for me because I was also outed by the West Wind. So... uh, (laughs) I'm I'm just here to share my story. Thank you. Thank you for that. And then next up, we have Fran, who I was recently um, told I've been saying her last name wrong this whole time. Uh, McMahon? McMahon? Hi. I'm going to feel bad now saying that you said it wrong again. It's McMahon. Oh, goodness. McMahon. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It literally is not spelled how it sounds. And admittedly, again, it's said differently by every bloody section of Britain. Fair enough. Like, I could go to literally the next county over and they'd say it completely differently as well. So you're fine. It's fine. I just thought I should let you know. <laughs> Me, stupid American. Uh, <laughs> so we've got Jason's POV of the Nico chapters, which we will talk about. Why was it in Jason's POV? Um, we've got a lot of um, <laughs> groaning and eye rolling and fake barfing going on in the Zoom call right now. <laughs> and we'll talk about all of it um, as it comes up, as we go through the scene. And then we'll take a break and talk about Annabeth's POV. If you will recall, we last left Percy and Annabeth in Tartarus with Percy nearly dying from curses and Gorgon's blood and Annabeth and Bob going to get some help. And then we open up on Jason um, literally plummeting through the sky, falling to his death after a fight with the Venti above the Argo 2 because he gets knocked out. Of course, when does he not? Um, I feel like this was like the biggest running gag that I never understood or like I never got from Heroes of Olympus that it was supposed to be funny that he kept getting knocked out. I I just thought it was so annoying. (laughs) I was going to say, like, I I just finished Lost Hero and four times in that book, he's knocked out unconscious four times. Like, he he should really stay in hospital for a long period of time because he's got multiple head injuries. Oh, yeah, like CTE. It's frustrating, though, because I feel like whenever he passes out, it's always like... But he passed out from exerting too much effort because his powers are so great because he's a man. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like maybe he's a man with like low blood pressure or maybe he's like anemic. Someone should really check in on him, see if he's getting well, enough iron. He's blind, so it's possible he's got many other medical yeah. conditions. Should have worn a helmet. Like, he was raised by wolves. I'm pretty sure they don't know how to like <laughs> look after a human child properly. This is a good point. 
As Jason passes out, he passes into a dream vision, which may be my favorite dream vision of all of Heroes of Olympus. Essentially, Reyna and Octavian and like the entire legion of Camp Jupiter is confronting Rachel Elizabeth Dare slash Grover, who I think this is the first time we're seeing him in the entirety of Heroes of Olympus. And only. And only. Oh, how absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> I have missed him. This is the follow-up to the uh, napkin note that Annabeth sends to Rachel, and Rachel is relaying the message to Reyna, saying you, as a Roman, um, are the one who needs to take the Athena Parthenos that will give us all like unexplained power boost against the giants. And to be honest, this entire scene that Jason is witnessing... It feels a little fruity. (laughs) Rachel's like, I knew this note was from Annabeth instantly. It's Annabeth's handwriting. And I was like, ooh, you do know Annabeth's handwriting, don't you? And there's just a lot of like staring and not blinking and extremely powerful energy between Rachel and Reyna. Finally, Reyna's just like, I'll do this for Annabeth. Uh, oh, Oh? Oh? It's giving two girlfriends. It's giving two girlfriends with the same girlfriend meeting up here, both dating Annabeth. (laughs) Also, we have seen literally like next to nothing of Rachel actually being the Oracle since the last Olympian. So it's so fun to finally see her like stepping in her power, like yes! throwing green smoke out of her mouth all over Octavian. Flexing on Octavian. <laughs> he's, he's like a weird fake Oracle type thing where he's like, I am the prophet of the gods. I can discern the future. And she's like, cool. My eyes glow green and I speak prophecies, but... Yeah. Yes. Stab a teddy bear, why don't you? That's that's very fun. <laughs> yes, she's literally not at all threatened by him. Not at all. I mean, he's a pasty white boy. Who would be? Period. Like... This is also the scene where we learned that Reyna is embarrassed by her initials, which are Ra Ra. Ra Ra Rasputin, lover of the, the Russian queen. queen. Yeah, uh-huh. I played Just Dance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's the only reason why I know that song is literally Just Dance. Oh, I'm so glad that's such a shared international experience we all had. And Octavian's all butthurt. He's like, Reyna, like, how are you even going to find them? Like, you don't even know where they are. They're like somewhere in Europe. Oh my, not that. This also feels like kind of the second time that Jason has like, there's just been a huge piece of information that's like really important to the moment or to his personality that we have just like found out about, like randomly only at the very last second. Um, like when he kind of knew about the Athena Parthenos. Of the Praetor lineage yeah this time it's that there's this like secret spot that jason and reyna have always talked about wanting to go together kind of vibe um, <laughs> and it's where the two of them are theoretically going to like meet up and rendezvous or share some information about how they're going to get the rest of this plan going jason does talk later in these pov chapters about how it's hard for him to sort of talk about the time of his life before he got his memory wiped which is so fair and i feel like He has been traumatized and he's been through a lot, but it's weird just as a reader how we like never get these pieces of information about him until they're absolutely necessary. So part of me as a reader is just like, okay, secrets, boys, secrets. secrets." He is This one is a little less bad than the Mark of Athena where that was clearly just relevant, pertinent information about someone who was going to head into danger. This is a little bit more of like a, oh, haha, I guess I did say this thing with Reyna about how we were both unsettlingly ambitious. (laughs) Yeah. It's just weird because there's like so little characterization of him ever that when we do get like a fact about his past, it's so jarring. Mm -hmm. He's a plank of wood. That's why, literally, he's he is a a chalkboard that someone forgot that they were meant to be writing on, 
and he's just been kind of left and put into a story. That is you such a good metaphor. Him. It's like the sexy lamp situation. You could play replace Jason with a chalkboard and nothing would change. Just people write down the information that's important when necessary. Be like, ah, chalkboard Jason, thank you for providing this valuable information. So you're saying also he's, the like, irony. he's like Buford, the automated yeah. desk type thing? Wow. Yes. Dang, if we if we were to pretend to be returned to Camp Haplet for a moment, we had to vote somebody off the island, and it was between Buford, the mechanical table, and Jason, I'd be a little torn. <laughs> <laughs> Buford, the mechanical table, did laundry. Okay, okay, but I feel like we've talked about it, though. Like, Jason is probably very clean. He does his laundry. He got all of that neat freakness from Camp Jupiter. Well, it's the military style, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I promise Jason is about to grow on us very, very soon. It's just not in this POV. It's in the next one, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, as Jason is falling and about to die, Piper's charm speak wakes him up, saves his life. This is, I wish we started a counter for how many times Ooh. this has happened. Her charm speak is also something that I'm always surprised isn't talked about now. She's brought him back to life with her charm speak. Like, at this point, admittedly, once, but like, does it later again? I think like twice? She's done it two or three times in total brought him back to life and i'm like why is this bitch not more important yes. because she's literally the only reason this man's alive mm-hmm. he's useless <laughs> give piper more give her more credit give her more powers we've talked about it before the women of the seven are sort of like and talia they're all just like woefully underpowered and underappreciated couple more things before we get to nico um jason is now uncomfortable around hazel he says because he saw her use her magic mist powers i (sighs) we are so tired we're so tired she's a witch yeah exactly jason Jason flies jason shoots (laughs) lightning out of the air and he's talking about oh i don't know made somebody think that the cliff was actually an ocean like that's where i draw the line where is the prejudice coming from? Isla Nasty. The line is literally like, it also says that he's, she's making the others uncomfortable too. And it's like, Jason didn't want to meet her eyes because of her quote trick with the mist. Like, you mean the time that she saved your life? Where she advanced <laughs> the quest? Like, I'm sorry, were we all there together experiencing <laughs> the same thing? I'm so confused. This is where we get the quote about his difficulty remembering his life before the memories got wiped. And I, it's just hard to figure out if Jason is like, if he is um mean or scary or maybe just like a little dumb like a bit of a himbo i think that he really steps into his himbo identity in this book and that's where <laughs> we get this beautiful art for him this is the evolution we want for men is um silent and towards the back he's a bit more on the on the bow <laughs> side of it like there are so, so let's <laughs> i know what i'm saying i know what i meant you know, the sliding scale of himbo where like it's you're closer to him or you're closer to bow no it makes sense it makes sense <laughs> the him is like you know you still got you got you're, you're more like muscle than brains but then also with the bow bit it's just you don't you don't have much of either but you're still pretty dope i've never heard somebody explain it like that but honestly that makes so much sense yeah (laughs) i've just made it up and i don't know how i feel about it no i love it um carter do you want to take over from here we are now in croatia we we have a little mini quest now for jason and nico this is this is the spot that um jason and reyna have been talking about kind of vibe Baby, are you for the she does sound exactly like that. <laughs> Were her voices like hollow or something? Mm-hmm. The Love song that. is Meet Me at a Spot by Willow and Tyler something, whose last name I can't remember right now. Oh. Check it out. Um, Jason is going to go and leave a message for Reyna at this place that is the um, home of the last pagan Roman emperor, whose name is 
Diocletian. Diocletian, right? I think we're all going to agree to that. It's not Diocletian, is it? Just call him Di. Just call him Di. Oh my god, Emperor Di, like Princess Di, Diana. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're probably not the best comparison of people. One is kind of good, the other... murder <laughs> this is section of the book is so interesting i had to do so much research on like what is real and what is rick canon um, the emperor is real yes. he was the last pagan emperor True. Um, his palace is a place you can really go to and visit yeah the palace is um it, it's in his i believe childhood home they said right because he's originally from this area obviously he ruled the empire from rome but Reyna and Jason are into this because something to do with stealing immense power. He was an amazing he was leader. He was a leader of the Legion. I mean, as the last pagan emperor. A good politician as well. The yeah. descriptions of him being the last pagan emperor are very fascinating to me because they're specifically contrasting him to Constantine, the first Christian emperor. And in this situation, Emperor Di then by comparison has like stronger ties to their traditions and the like thought structures and pantheons from which they derive power but also there's this way in which they say all of these things but also like are kind of skirting around like the alternative you know <laughs> like i don't know like it's not like they're saying oh constantine was really weak or um, like how rome fell as an institution once people stopped recognizing our parents the true um, source of power in western civilization I honestly think it's a little spicy from Rick. Like, we've come a long way from the Lightning Thief era, we won't talk about God, capital G. Yeah, to, because we are. Yeah, to now talking about how one man had Christianity thrust upon him. That's suddenly like a POV on Christian history and not just saying all of us should believe in the Western God, capital G. So good for Rick. Um, sorry this is taking a while to get through, but it's like kind of pretty complicated. Not only do we have Emperor die, we also have his scepter that Rick says will raise the Roman legions, which is what we are here for because those undead armies will hopefully give us the boost we need against the giants. Um, and no one has ever heard of this besides Jason and of course mm-hmm. Nico, who, quote, gave him a thin, creepy smile. Um Ew. But also, how cute that Nico knows about all of these um, traditions of the dead from different <laughs> civilizations. Like, when was he learning this? He was doing this work on his own, or was he getting it from Hades? Well, well he did live with his dad for years. Yeah, to be he, fair, he lived in the underworld. They're asking him about a scepter of death, which I feel like is right up his alley because it would be like, it it would be like, hey, Percy, do you know this thing about boats? And he'd be like, ah, yes, about boats. But Percy didn't do research. Like, Percy doesn't know any history of boats. He can just that's, wave that's his fingers fair. and make boats work. Nico, Nico's a scholar. Yes, and it's he's a scholar. And it's not like he is at Camp Half-Blood for anyone to teach him this. So is he pulling from the archives in the underworld? Is Hades giving him Homeschool. homeschooling yeah, lessons? Yeah, yeah. It's Hades. I think it's like the Furies, see, maybe. Oh my god, no, because <laughs> Hades, Persephone, and Demeter. I can see Persephone and Demeter teaching him, like when like Persephone's down for like obviously the winter and stuff like that. She does a few teachings. Of, no, but Persephone hates him. How to use herbology because you know this is how you need to live, ghost boy. <laughs> ding ding ding! Um, fanfic request for Persephone homeschooling. I, I think it's the Furies because the Furies are literally substitute teachers. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> that's, yes, that's a good yes, point. That's you're a good right. Point. That too. And oh my god! So Hades wouldn't make him feel alone. He bring the zombies in so they can be his classmates in the classroom. <laughs> All right, Fran, I'm not saying you should write another book, but <laughs> I'll do it. Anyway, yeah, we're off on this quest. It's just the two of them, which makes Jason very uncomfortable because reasons. Jason just doesn't like him. There's something about him, etc., etc. But we are now following an angel 
quote unquote, to the palace, like a winged humanoid individual. At, at some point when they're following the angel, Jason decides that they must fly to get there and does so by just grabbing Nico and whisking him away on the wind. Scent is important. <laughs> Nico's response is like, don't, don't ever, ever grab, grab me again. again. I, I don't, don't like, like being, being touched. touched. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I you like to be whisked away by somebody on the wind? Like, that sounds delightful, but also not Jason. <laughs> if, if they asked, if they asked, I'd probably be fine. Is the fact that he grabbed him. Consent is important. Consent Jason is important. Rex. Learn how to use it. And also, just don't be whisking everybody away on the wind. Like, that's, save that for... Yeah, like, now you're just whisking everybody <laughs> away on the wind? Okay. <laughs> Piper later on is like, how dare you? I thought that was just for me. <laughs> The next thing we learn is that Nico's actually been here before, and he was here in 1938 on a weekend trip with his mom and Bianca, which is, one, super sweet, and two, making us think more about where he's been, where he's yeah. from, um, about his past, and things that we haven't really considered before. And now he's, like, opening up to Jason, because Jason asked one follow-up question, <laughs> and that is, I guess, where the bar is. Mm. <laughs> I, I hate this trope that people always talk about of like, oh, it must have been so hard for you back then because it is never about the person. It is just about how shitty other people were. When we get to the part that Nico's gay, I mean, that's the whole point of this episode. Um, we all know. <laughs> spoilers. Because there's a line where it's like, I can't even imagine what that must have been like back then to have hold on to this secret that's just so shameful, especially from the time that you come from. And it's like, the only difference is how mean-spirited and less accepting other people were, which I think is such an unfair way of putting the burden on the queer person. Being queer has been around for centuries, for thousands of years that we've seen in every civilization. And the only thing that's made it worse is other people not being accepting. So when Jason was like having this realization of like, that must have been so difficult for Nico. And it's like, it, it probably was, but it's not Nico's fault. It's people like you. It's also, like, I don't even think it's necessarily historically accurate. Like, we might need to um, do some more research on this, but the idea that there has been a linear progression from homophobic to non-homophobic is obviously wrong. But even, like, within the span of the past century in Italy, I don't think that tracks. Like, if you were to compare 2012 Italy to, like, 1938 Italy, like, I'm not... <laughs> I would not bet money that, like, it, there's, like, a huge cultural difference in attitudes towards um specifically like not queerness broadly but like the idea that you would potentially like be life partners with someone of the same gender i don't know that the cultural attitudes at those two points in time were necessarily super different and jason is just making a lot of assumptions <laughs> um completely this is the thing so this is like i did a video on my youtube channel about this how like i, I basically i hate this chapter i always skip it whenever i read this book again because it makes me so angry and the comments that I was getting was like, well, just because he was a kid doesn't mean he doesn't realise that there is homophobia where he is. I'm like, but he's still six years old, goes into the Ho Ho Lotus Hotel for decades, is put into the River Leith. So ri at the same time, I'm kind of like, how does he have his memories back? Because we were never told how he got his memories. Powerful so people get just... them back, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Without any explanation yeah, whatsoever. You just have to be powerful enough. And it's just this whole thing. I'm just like, it just feels like an excuse Rick made for Nico hating himself for being gay when he is a six-year-old child when he's around that time. No child is that observant at six. I know kids are smart. I completely get it. But like at six, you would not be aware of the cultural 
aspects of people hating queer people because it would not be in everyday conversation. No one thought about yeah. queer people 24-7 in the 1930s or 40s. It's also it became not... more of a discussion later on. Yeah. But it's like... also not clear to me that Nico would have known this about himself as a six-year-old, especially based on the way that this outing goes. Like the Exactly. The suggestion is perhaps that Nico did not understand the nature of romance until later in his life and would have potentially reevaluated some things in that context. Yeah. yeah. Skipping ahead just like a little bit, this is the part that's always stuck with me the most is that it is such a big revelation for, I, I don't know, it, it was for me and I, and I think it is for a lot of queer people, for you to finally say the words like, like I'm gay. Like that, because when you like finally verbalize it, it, it always bothered me that essentially Jason says that for him because it's like, no, dude, it's fine. You could totally tell us or you don't need to say it. I already know. And it's like, congrats, white boy, you figured it out. But that to me was a harmful part of the way that it was written. And like on top of that, I hate that it seems like Rick's trying to make it like a game within a game is like, did you spot the clues where Nika, where I was trying to? Drop the hints that he was gay. Because, like, it should not be a plot point. And also, there's no, like, these are the universal clues that someone is attracted to the same gender or not straight. Uh, When I reread these chapters, I was like, oh, I forgot why I requested to be on this episode. Let's let's get into that. Because, really, when we first encountered this, like, as the books came out, the response that I would say we had and that a lot of people online had was one of treated like a like a Shonda Rhyme boom end of episode plot twist you know like it was there to be a surprise <laughs> and at the time I think the thinking was more generous to people who were doing these types of things because for those of you who were young and don't remember this I really mm-hmm. envy you you will grow up having a totally different self-conception from anyone who is roughly our age but in 2012 it was super different the opinion polling on what it meant was super different. The legal realities were super different in the United States. People were just like, wow. The comparison point at this point was like Dumbledore. And so people were like, wow, Mm, like it's real. It is canon in the text of the books. And we can look at things and point to them in the text and say, oh, he didn't just decide to do this at the House of Hades. And that was the standard that we were working with. And so in that way, you know, it's better this than that. It was never textual. And it's obviously better this than like, he decided this after the Mark of Athena for shits and giggles, and it doesn't make sense with any of the past writing about this. That said, the way that it's laid out does appear to be like this little scavenger hut, like him being like, oh, ha ha, like, look at the way that I surprised you in a way that is not, it's not a productive way of thinking about this. It treats it as as a device, as a gimmick, Mm -hmm. and as something that also like very much assumes a straightness is default. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and like what you said, Jackson, about the game within the game or like the scavenger hunt, I feel like that really began partway through Mark of Athena. And like Carter said, that is so much better than just like Dumbledoring it with no (laughs) careful intention or thought. But looking at it with the 2021 perspective, it's like, what was the purpose of this Mm -hmm. scene? Was it really necessary for this information about Nico to be shared in this way other than drama drama and what's frustrating about it is that you have this whole magical world and this is the first time before trials of apollo where you have a god say like i fell in love with a man which to me also bothered me because it's like 
Oh, I was I was gay, but I was, it was one time, so it it was really just like not a big deal. Well, I mean, it's a um, Roman god; they're not they're, they're not gay. They they just have right. sex with everybody. <laughs> right? Should we take yeah. a moment to discuss this because it's a very interesting piece of Jason's <laughs> internal monologue? Interesting is the way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, it's on page two eighty three. We're skipping ahead a little bit. Um, the angel carries them. the angel's the west wind. Yes. I think we said this earlier. Yeah, Favonius, <laughs> the very gay West Wind, carries them from the palace in Split to the ruins of a town called Salonis. I think that's how you say that. It's a yeah. real ruins you can visit in Croatia. Um, supposedly, this is the birthplace of Emperor Dai and the home of Cupid. And the West Wind is being like super sketchy, saying vague stuff about his master Cupid and looking upon the true face of love. Which is a reference, of course, to the myth of Cupid and Psyche how she's not allowed to look upon his face, and then she does, blah, 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 yeah. As this is happening, the West Wind gives us a little background. I think somebody asked explicitly, like, why do you work for Cupid? What is the nature of your relationship? And the explanation is that the West Wind works for Cupid to pay off a debt because he basically killed the guy he was into because he and Apollo were both into the same guy, got jealous. So Favonius says, I fell in love with a mortal named Hyacinthus. Like the Hyacinth. He was quite extraordinary. He, Jason's brain was still fuzzy from his wind trip, so it took him a second to process that. Oh, yes, Jason Grace, Favonius arched an eyebrow. I fell in love with a dude. Does that shock you? Honestly, Jason wasn't sure. He tried not to think about the details of godly love lives, no matter who they fell in love with. After all, his dad Jupiter wasn't exactly a model of good behavior. Compared to some of the Olympian love scandals he'd heard about, the West Wind falling in love with a mortal guy didn't seem very shocking. I guess not. So, Cupid struck you with his arrow, and you fell in love. I hate the God implications of Cupid's arrow. The Cupid's arrow part is what pissed me off about that. Of like they lean into saying, "Oh, did did Cupid strike you with his arrow?" to make it seem like he had no choice but to fall in love with a man. Mm-hmm. This just sounds like those SNL skits of like the theater production <laughs> yes, of like literally. I fell I, in love with a dude. Does that, that shock you? you? I may have been doing that on purpose. Yes, we'll link that in the show notes. The thing, what 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 I was gonna say before is that like this is a magical world. But also the default is boy, goat, girl, tree. Exactly. With uh, Grover and Juniper. Grover and Juniper. Like, heterosexuality runs deep. And it's like, are you kidding me? This, like, it's so frustrating because there is such a chance for this to be so nonchalant. You show up to either of these camps and it's totally fine because guess what we believe in magic there's all these gods and um and the gods are all doing whatever too like that's the that's the thing about it <laughs> like zeus gave birth to dionysus through sewing him into his leg like clearly we don't need adam and eve like <laughs> procreation so it was just so frustrated zeus also gave birth to athena from his head etc etc like I, it really feels like rick is trying to preempt something in a way that is common in discourses now where you assume the positionality that someone is going to take in response to you just for shits and giggles because you assume that somebody has to and i i kind of understand the defensiveness but i it's not it doesn't feel that productive to me the other thing about this is of course that he the language is so nasty like he's not saying like oh it's because all the gods are queer that this is okay he's saying like zeus behaves immorally therefore homosexuality is probably fine because it is not as immoral Oof. as the other very immoral things that Zeus does. Oof. Girl, Zeus also has sex with men, yeah. first of all. 
famously famously (laughs) but like i think we all agree that we don't need to say that homosexuality is or is not better than various crimes or uh, wrongs against people in order to to proceed with a story about somebody but but alas (laughs) yeah the scandal part stood out to me i this is the thing about jason so this is the thing that i also don't get about the fandom everyone makes it out to be that jason is like this pinnacle of an ally to nico and then you read what he says you read what he does he steals the moment from Nico, and it just it makes me so i feel yeah. like angry yeah. i'm red in the face so i don't know why <laughs> oh, i'm also getting mad now because we're now at the yeah. part where favonius leaves them and suddenly there are these like voices all around them and, and we've said before like rick knows how to make a scary tense thrilling scene and yeah. if the content of this was like anything else it might be among my favorite scenes because of how terrifying and spooky it it's is very well written yes exactly and it the makes sense, sense as a characterization of love to be vengeful and hidden and monstrous in a horrifyingly yeah monstrous surrounding force like attacking you like sure yeah absolutely but but as favonius is exiting he says think long and hard about how you proceed nico d'angelo you cannot lie to cupid if you let your anger rule you well your fate will be even sadder than mine and at this point we still don't know what's going on what favonius is referring to we do know that nico is someone who carries like grudges and who holds a lot of anger inside himself but this doesn't really make sense this is never clear to me like, okay, they say all these things. I don't feel like we ever got payoff on this line about um, facing the truth and holding your grudge. Like, are we to assume that Nico has not confessed this to himself and that that is what we're trying to achieve here and that Jason is just also there because we don't care about Nico? I don't know. It, I like, don't know. I, I, don't, I don't understand what the counterfactual is. Like, why would it be bad if Nico never did this? Like, the assumption is supposed to be that there is a utility to him say, saying what he says and going through this experience. And I just don't even understand how even the most confused person could come out of this being like like this had to happen like this is obviously a good mm-hmm. thing for nico right. it's like the showiness of we don't know what nico has and has not come to terms with about himself but by putting jason in this scene and yeah. having jason narrate it it becomes a public space to come out into and does not center nico at yes. like, why couldn't he have been there with frank Frank would be such a wonderful person, I feel like, to go through this with. Well, Hazel. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't it have been Hazel? Yeah, it should have been Hazel. That is his sister. That's his sister. Especially after he lost Bianca. Literally. And people always say Bianca was the only person that he felt safe with, so there's this implication that Bianca maybe yeah. knew about his identity. Maybe he didn't know. So it would have but... been a beautiful parallel to have Hazel there. Yes! That would have made sense. He also... to actually comfort him as well. Yes. The idea of... Let's just say, it. the idea of the closet is an invention of like Christianity in the West in recent history. Like the, the notion that Nico benefits by telling somebody about this and that that is somehow identity validating for him necessarily is weird and contingent. And I, I guess, again, this is of the time. In 2012, I think this was very much the way that people consumed queer narratives is that it's stories of like waifish cisgendered white boys telling people that they are gay and then not doing anything after that based on that. Or, like, maybe having, like, a pure little chaste sexless relationship with um, somebody in which they are just, like, best friends. They could be roommates. Yeah, exactly. Like, very much, like, the Kurt Hummel model of, oh, like, I'm such a brave person for, like, saying this fact about myself. of 2010's pop queer media. (sighs) Yeah. It seems like it's just there for the benefit of knowledge, which is frustrating because it's, like, oh, you only care because now you know something new. You're trying to figure out a secret. When I read it the first time, I was like, oh, damn, he gay? Like, I feel represented. But now reading back, it's like, oh, this is not... He had no control over his narrative. He doesn't get a love interest until 
later, but at the same time, this is another issue I have with a lot of queer media, is that it's like, oh, there are two gay people. They should date. Yeah. The one thing I did like about this was... I really did like the foil of love and death because when you meet Thanatos, yeah, uh, uh, the son of Neptune, death is very calm. Death is very peaceful. Death is very sleepy. It goes against what you're thinking, and then you meet love, and love is harsh, and love is brutal, and love yep. is not love kind. Opposites. What I liked is that love is not easy, and there's so much fighting within yourself that it is so hard to stand up and mm-hmm. say those and face that and deal with who you love because it is not a choice. Yeah. For Jason, it's like, oh, this is easy. Like, I'm ready to fight. Like, I'll do this. Yeah, And mm-hmm. it's like, no, 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 you're not fighting someone else. You're fighting yourself, but through the, through, I don't know. No. Uh, I'm rambling here, but. No, but we no, should I stay know, on that. I know what you're talking about. It's this relationship with shame and the monstrosity of Cupid, because I love the rich characterization and like the myth appropriate characterization of Cupid as a monster. Yeah. By introducing him with this scene and putting him in this scene with Nico, it makes me feel as a reader that there is yes. a monstrosity and shame and burden to being queer. Yes. And it's not like, it's not like we need to have a book set in a fantasy world where there's no homophobia, although those kinds of escapist worlds are nice and are they like healing to read about. It's just, it's mm-hmm. just the way that this feels like this scene is one of the worst things that's ever happened to Nico. And by like adding this horror of having a crush on a hero and understanding your greatness yeah. on top of everything he's already been through. It just feels like such a necessary violence and a really negative characterization of what it means to like come to terms with your queer identity. It's very unnecessary violence. In case it's not clear, I think the perspective that I feel that we all share is that this was, it, it was a violence done upon Nico, this disaster. But on the point that you were making earlier, Jackson, like I think that the problem is not just about like the queerness being the monstrosity. Like I think the argument that Rick is implicitly making here is that love is violent, is the point, right? Like love forces you to do all these things. But in the context of Nico, I think this is his way of trying to talk about how hard it is to be gay because love is hard. And this is a way in which love is forcing you to suffer all of these right. terrible burdens, which is not true it's true in some like interpersonal senses but like by putting Nico in there like the implication is like oh your love you gay boy the fact that you like these people is like what is causing these harms for you as opposed to the church or Other something people, you know yeah, like, like, like um, Jackson was saying. right 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 because love for Nico is going to be so hard it's going to be a battle and it's such a struggle and the last trope in this that I absolutely hate is the trope of like well <laughs> I always knew Favonius and Cupid are like, we know, we just need you to say it. I knew you were gay so long ago. Don't put yourself in someone else's journey and don't try and prod them along the way. Like, it is so harmful. It's not gossip. It shouldn't be gossip. But it's always treated as like, oh, you're gay? Well, I've always known. Especially with Favonius being an older gay man, treating Nico this way, it just is not a cute look at all. It's nasty. It is not giving community. I was going to go off of um, Jackson's point as well. We're being shown as like love being this violent thing. But every single heterosexual couple, Jason and Piper, Frank and Hazel, obviously the later ones as well, if you're straight, Sorry, no struggles for you. It's just for the queer people. Only the queer people face struggles in their relationships. Even later on, we, we get like Apollo and Trials of Apollo as well. But him being bisexual, he has trauma with his relationships. We never see that level of trauma with any of the heterosexual couples that we see down the line. Even um, it's basically just any homosexual couple 
in the series is treated with their romance being trauma related and not a single heterosexual couple and it's just it gives this precedent that basically if you're, if you're queer sorry but uh you're gonna suffer and it's your own fault because you know you shouldn't be queer right also right. on top of that after this whole scene and jason witnesses this and he's like oh your crush wasn't on annabeth it was on percy it totally invalidates everything nico has ever done in the context of Percy, because yes, it's like, absolutely. oh, you were only yes. doing that because you had a crush on him. And what it seems like is that it puts Nico in a context of gay people have no self-control. Yeah. And he had to remove himself from the situation because he couldn't control himself around Percy. And it's like, are you kidding me? That is so not what it is. He's removing himself because maybe he feels ashamed, which he shouldn't. And maybe he's removing himself because intense trauma which he's had. Rick, I feel like, missed such a cool moment for an ally. Hades is literally the god of, like, darkness, death, gloom, whatever. Slap a rainbow pin on that guy. <laughs> yeah, also, it's, like, in a broader sense here, why Why does a character having a crush on someone invalidate their actions and contributions to that person's goals or their joint goals? Like, it's a, so there's been some TikTok trolls in my comments lately talking about how Annabeth taking the sky and Titan's curse wasn't actually cool or heroic because she was like quote unquote manipulated by Luke into doing it and I just feel like that kind of discussion it takes the action and like the intelligence yeah. agency and the, the agency yeah, yeah out, out of it all like Nico was the one who came up with the idea for Percy to take a dip in the sticks and just because Nico has yeah. complex feelings for this this boy who introduced him to this world and was present and a bystander at his sister's death yeah. like all these complicated experiences and, and feelings don't just boil down into like oh, he was into Percy, so everything he's ever done is is pathetic now. Yeah. That's such an unsympathetic yeah. way of looking at characters' motives and their behaviors. Yeah, no, absolutely. Sorry, like, there, <laughs> there's so much disrespect for the agency that people have. I, and this is going to sound like such a boomer thing to say, but, like, the approach that people take <laughs> oh, no. to romantic situations in which they feel that two people, like, should not be in a couple, but one is attracted to the other person, and there's some sort of traditionally power dynamic there, is one that... I think really does not acknowledge the perspective of what it feels like to be the, the other person, you know, like for Nico and Annabeth, I think it's so important that we take their perspective really seriously and say like, this is absolutely how a person would feel in this situation. It's such a reductive way of thinking about like where they are in their lives. You know, it, I don't know if I'm articulating this clearly. I think that the point that I'm trying to make is just because the situation isn't ideal and you can see that from an outside vantage point does not mean that you shouldn't still try and understand and sympathize with and respect people who are in these situations you know like having feelings and making choices that you would not agree with and should not agree with i hope that makes sense <laughs> yeah makes sense to me adding jason doesn't even like nico like yes. the entire thing leading up to it is jason being like oh i really don't want to be with this creepy kid i can't stand being around him he wanted to leave nico to die Literally, like, only yeah. a book ago. Literally a book ago. That was, like, a week ago, I yes. think, right? <laughs> like, literally a week. But And, like, Nico knows what people think of him, so he, he is not in a safe space. Add in the fact that... And this is the thing that always got me. I never understood why Nico wasn't made a like a pov in this book when so much literally he should tell not. this story why it should not? have been his perspective it should be him and like if they wanted to do this i think that my au is like nico sitting down with like cupid and Pavonius and just being like so hey everyone like if richard <laughs> wanted to make this canon he wanted to have the words in the text like there's so many other ways to do that yes, that agreed. mostly would have involved like just being in nico's perspective and just having him 
say this in like an internal monologue or to another person who is not part of the quest or like there are so many ways that would have involved making Nico more of a character and centering him and giving him a sense of control and agency over his own life that I guess was not appropriate for the story and the author's imagination but would have been better. <laughs> yeah it definitely keeps coming back for me to the control and the agency with this being in Jason's POV it feels super invasive and uncomfortable and I feel like like as a reader I shouldn't be here witnessing this and I feel bad for Nico it, like especially when we're going back into Nico's memories and Jason is just there witnessing all of this as he as Nico meets Percy for this t- first time and loses Bianca it's so invasive so and invasive we, we could read a lot of these quotes and like do specific citations but like we said it's just it's icky and it's a little sad so we won't get too into the quotes here if you want to reread it for specifics you can go back to the pages and find it there but the the big line is nico just saying you know like i had a crush on percy that's it he doesn't even say i'm gay yeah those aren't the words which he uses. is frustrating well nico i don't know if nico is canonically gay as opposed to like the word gay is never used. bisexual or um yeah like he doesn't identify apologies even in trials of apollo it just says he has a boyfriend the word gay is never used in relation to nico it's worth harping on though definitely that nico does not identify i taking on an identity label is just a very very different experience than being forced to recall a identity labels are ever used Oh, no, I, I think you're right. I, I don't recall, particularly with like queer identity, anyone ever saying I am blank. Yeah. I think maybe Apollo possibly does. I think he refers to himself as bisexual, but I may be projecting. How bisexual of him to refer <laughs> yeah. to himself as bisexual? <laughs> I was just thinking, I know one of the, the only books I know that I've ever used an identity phrase is the Magnus Chase books because the characters that's are true. Magnus use um, the terms. Like, I think Alex refers to himself as pansexual. And like later on. Well, I will say surprisingly, I feel like Rick did a pretty good job with that one. At least when I read it, I remembered being like, okay, this is a little bit better. Yeah, definitely. You can tell where he started to get sensitivity readers. Yeah, for sure. And we still haven't read Magnus Chase yet, so apologies for that. Um, but I think we've pretty much hit everything I wanted us to have the space to talk about with the scene. Um, so now, what what I'm interested in, um, from like a sociological apology standpoint, this scene <laughs> and the sheer numbers of queer people in yeah. the Percy Jackson fandom, is there a correlation? Maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah. Did the scene have a lasting impact on us, like as far as representation? Even though the scene is like essentially, like we said, a forced outing, and we can now look back at it with a critical eye. Back then, it was huge, mm. and Nico has given and like continues to give so many kids a space to see themselves in. Yeah, and as scary as the scene is, what a big deal it was back then. If you ask. People in the fandom online, like Twitter or TikTok, whatever, I don't have statistics for this, but I'm pretty sure most people are likely to tell you every single member of the Seven is queer and will die (laughs) on that hill arguing with you about it. I've got to say, the only person that I don't think is Jason, because I feel like he's cannot, just because I think he's the biggest straight ally they could be. Like, he'll be the one who creates the banners for everyone. Mm -hmm. I feel like this, the Jason of it all, really perpetuates to me this idea that it's common in narratives of marginalization where, like, implicitly the greatest prize is to win the admiration and affection and friendship of whoever it was before who found you icky oh, no. and it really is not <laughs> the like popular kids. you don't owe it to yourself you don't owe it to anyone it is probably worse than the people you'd be hanging out with if you just avoided anyone who gave you a hard time before <laughs> you know like it really feels like the coming 
Jason Nico interactions are about trying to give Jason a like merit badge for how good he's trying to be here and not about like really like why would Nico want this? That doesn't make any sense to Literally, me. Literally, <laughs> Nico does not need Jason's stamp yeah. of approval. Well, Nico can fight his own battles. Like he could very literally just bring his own BR. Nico and be like can you can absolutely fight his off. own battles. Yeah. Like, it's not like Nico has no friend. Like Nico and Hazel have a perfectly good relationship. Like if he wants to confide in someone, he has someone exactly. to confide in, and he doesn't like Jason. <laughs> Jason doesn't like him. Yeah, they do not know each other <laughs> like does? that. Who does like Jason? Piper kind of. Just kidding. But, no, no, she doesn't. No, yeah, literally but she's no. brainwashed, so it's fine. No, she'll get there. My it's queen based will get on there. false memories. She'll get there. But no, this is the whole thing. This is why I don't understand why the fandom does say like I get it. Like in in like the fan canon, I can see Jason as like the you know the really good like straight ally. But in the books, it, yeah. he's not an ally. He's like the bare minimum. Like oh, I've seen you being traumatized. Chin yeah. up, yeah. Love, you know you'll be fine. It's all good. Like smack on the back sort of situation. Like he's that kind of yeah. fella. He's not actually an ally. Yeah, and also with Jason, like, thank God we're getting some more specific characterization in this book. There is a line in this POV about how he comes at his relationships, all interpersonal relationships, from this, like, uneven power dynamic of I am the leader and these are my teammates who I am in charge of. Like, yeah. I think it's it's page 272. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason always tried to build a good relationship with the people on his team. He learned the hard way that if somebody was going to have your back in a fight, it was better if you found some common ground and trusted each other. But Nico wasn't easy to figure out. Mm-hmm. I just, I can't imagine how weird that must be coming from another time. That's like his olive branch that he extends. So it's interesting how he sees these relationships in like a military sense. Like, I want you to have my back in battle. I want to make sure yeah. you won't stab me in the back. So I'm just going to have a conversation with you. We're still hating your existence, but like, we'll, we'll be chatty. Yeah. Yes. Which like, when it comes from Jason, annoying. When it comes from Raina, I, I have to respect it. <laughs> <laughs> Admittedly, Raina is also being screwed over so much. So she has a right. She has a she right be to defensive. be, you know specific about her relationships at the risk of sounding condescending i I think that for people of a certain age the idea of the twin punch of being gay is a really traumatizing experience and like it's nice to see that trauma reflected in like a really raw real way on the page and then also the idea that like straight people around you will be okay with it and particularly like the scariest straight people, which are like the bro-y guys, will not react to this and be like oh i will murder you in an alley they'll react by saying like oh haha I guess we're friends now. Like, mm. it, it's, it's giving kind of wish fulfillment in a way that I think is not um, very responsible and not something that I would be okay with if I saw this coming out now. Yeah, I, had thought about I do like worry that. that that sounds condescending. If you, if you feel differently about this, like, please, like, this is not to invalidate that. That's just, no, yeah, I, I, that. I agree. I also, apologies, I have to log off. Yes, I've got a, a call. call with my estranged uncle <laughs> in three minutes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation, Jackson. I really thank appreciate you so much. You being I think here. that's like, that's a commercial break. Totally. Let's, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Annabeth. Thank you so much. Bye, Jackson. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. I actually do have one more question slash 
conversation point on the subject of Nico, if that's okay with you guys. Oh, sure. Um, and Fran, as a writer, I'd love to hear from you on this. In order to like write a story, we all know a, your character has to go through something. There has to have a plot. <laughs> a character might have flaws to come to terms with or traumatic experiences they go through. And we don't come to all media for perfect stories or perfect happy characters. <laughs> and the reason I'm thinking about this is because this is a conversation that's been going on surrounding the Dear Evan Hansen movie and mm. the awful things that... Yeah the main character yeah. does that being said do we feel like the scene was necessary Not at all for the <laughs> plot like did did the drama intention being built here have anything to do with mm -hmm. the plot that was going on in this book was it necessary for the storytelling yeah because the connection between the scepter of emperor die and cupid really doesn't have anything to do with the myth Nigo can also fully raise armies of the dead yes. like it would Literally, not have been that himself. hard to just say like oh nico has a little power up now yeah, right and to write it in a different way <laughs> and we get the exact same battle yeah. effects except without i guess the whole frank whatever whatever but um <laughs> mm -hmm. I, there really is this delicate line when you're writing between is this going to be a story where i play out awful things that happen in real life or where i don't play out awful things that happen in real life so there's these two ends of a spectrum that are is this going to be unrealistic? Mm -hmm. And then on the other side yeah. of things, is this going to be horribly this, traumatic to yeah. read? And it's just a fine line that you have to walk as a writer. I was just saying, so there is there is definitely a fine line that comes between it. And I think the thing that, and this is where Rick failed a lot, in my opinion, when it came to Nico as a character. Most of the trauma that happens to Nico, and actually a lot of the characters, predominantly the BIPOC characters in this series, face a lot of trauma for character development. Mm -hmm. And even sometimes that development doesn't actually happen. It is there for the reader to feel more sympathy for this character without it actually providing any significance to that character's story. Mm -hmm. In Nico's Absolutely. case, especially with this coming out, there was no reason for his coming out to happen in this book. Yeah. In the House of Hades, it made no sense whatsoever for it to happen, other than the fact oh, we need more trauma for Nico, so he has more of a role to play in this story when it comes to the doors of death. That is the only reason why it happens. And it's a consistent thing with Nico's character where he will face trauma to further another character's story. In this case, it was to show Jason as, in quotes, because he barely manages it, a compassionate person. Yeah. <laughs> and at Absolutely. least him supporting Nico later yeah. on. Like, there's a moment, uh, I think it's on the boat later on, where, like, someone goes against something that Nico says, which is a good idea, but they... I think it's Leo, because it's probably Leo. <laughs> he doesn't like something that Nico mm -hmm. has said, and Jason immediately back backs Nico up. And it just... It feels like the only reason why we are traumatising Nico is to help further someone else's mm -hmm. story. And it happens so much. We have the same case with Hazel... Um, we have uh, all the time with Piper, like in the first book as well, the whole situation with her father. That is to further the plot and the story, but also to further her trauma for someone to help her through it. And like, um, I'm a, a freelance editor as well, and I work with a lot of queer writing. And even queer authors themselves get it wrong when it comes to right. writing um, in particular stories about... You can have trauma for queer characters, because, you know, like, people do experience traumatic things. Like... My reasoning predominantly for why I don't like the Nico story is that I was forced out of the closet myself whilst at school and it was an absolutely horrific experience. Mm. And um, mm -hmm. so I'm aware that these things can be traumatic, but there is a level where when trauma just continues for a character with no sign of it ever stopping, 
that person stops being a character and ends up just becoming a plot mm-hmm. device. They're no yes. longer a person. Yes. They're someone to further someone else's story and the narrative itself by traumatizing them because you can. I think that's so, that, that was so well said. I, I think it gets lost <laughs> sometimes in the fandom because like we, I don't know. Like It's, it's the fan version of Nico. I yeah. Think like, it's like, the fan version of Nico that people latch onto instead of the canon version. Okay, I'm forgetting the name and I'm forgetting the scholar that I should be citing for this. Um, shout out to Jion Kim and her very excellent class, but that I clearly do not remember enough of. But like, th- there's a school of thought about how people, <laughs> particularly queer people, will like consume media and then like recreate it, like break it down into bits and then like build other <laughs> like things out of its components. like postmodern bric-a-brac the heck out yeah of it. no exactly that's exactly mm-hmm. what it is and like i think that people are really mm. people are well trained to do that so that like when someone like neo comes along who is like canonically gay like it's so easy for people to like break this down and build yes. it into something yes oh my gosh that like fits the what power. they are thinking it and it's every like time. good without even like giving it a second thought before we like reread this i, I like look back and there's like oh that was probably actually not good what happened to him but like i didn't feel how viscerally like uncomfortable yeah. and upset i was because i I, don't know, I like misremembered it differently like nico exists in a cultural pantheon as something other than this like device for story furthering that he was written to be which is not a testament to rick unfortunately but like yeah. you know just like mm-hmm. a, a statement about the um creativity and resilience of other people <laughs> absolutely yeah i was just gonna say it's like a survival tactic if you don't see yourself anywhere in media or culture you have to manufacture that space for yourself and i was also gonna say it really reminds me of of tiktok and the postmodern brick brack of fandom tiktok specifically and how we can take pieces of audio from other tv shows or movies or whatever and put it into an entirely new scenario for the characters we care about, like taking a song that's popular right now and saying, this is how the seven would dance in a gay club. And that just becomes part of fan canon is fascinating and really impressive. Yeah, I gotta say the moment you said that, I was like, that makes me think of like that meme that people made of Cora in book one saying, you could say I'm bi-curious. And yes, everyone exactly. became convinced that that actually happened in the show. It didn't. It's not part of the show, but it feels like it is. And now it's basically canon, even though it didn't happen. <laughs> when something memes out so far, it just becomes a reality. <laughs> well, all this to say, if you are writing stories about identities you don't identify with, or even if you do, it's never a bad idea Hire to me. get sensitivity readers. <laughs> Fran is a sensitivity reader for hire. I'm on Fiverr. You can hire me as a sensitivity reader for queer stories if you would like to. Brilliant. (laughs) We'll link it in the bio. (laughs) So, transitioning back to Annabeth's POV, if you're still here listening to this episode, aw, thanks. Thanks for being here. We appreciate (laughs) you being here. Um, I really appreciate these Annabeth POV chapters for giving us a lull and a soft tartarus bed to land on after the painful nico chapters or not the nico chapters but the jason chapters about nico i have to keep correcting myself on that yeah (laughs) yeah truly the word i keep coming back to for these chapters is like tender like it's so tender how they're taken care of and the chapters are so well timed at this point in the book and also at this Mm. point in persabeth's tartarus journey this is where we finally meet damison for the first time the friendly giant who heals percy and annabeth realizes at the end that he is important to the prophecy 
from my limited research, okay. Damascene isn't a huge, like, looming presence in mythology. He was mostly just written about by the poet Nonus, if that's how you say that name. He's okay. the anti-Ares giant, which made him peaceful, which is so sweet. Um, but one day he kills a Maonian dragon or dracon by smashing a tree onto it because it's terrorizing yeah. the town. And as far as I can tell, the bit about him having to replay yeah. this fight with the dragon in this sisyphusian way in tartarus is just fully a rick machination yeah. it's not from the myth it's very good though oh no yeah it's so good it's <laughs> genius it's brilliant i love it i i love these chapters so much they're all so well done rick you're a genius you always pull through just just my toxic relationship with rick <laughs> always coming back <laughs> anyway i just talked a lot Carter, you want to take over <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how much detail we want to get into here. Um, maybe we just get to the actual description of the giant's place. Yeah. Wait, Fran, do you want to read this one this time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I can see. Thank you for highlighting it for me. Of course. Um, <laughs> Cozy. Annabeth never thought she would describe anything in Tartarus that way. But despite the fact that the giant's hut was as big as a planetarium and constructed of bones, mud and dracon skin, it definitely felt cozy. In the centre blazed a bonfire made of pitch and bone, yet the smoke was white and odourless, rising through the hole in the middle of the ceiling. The floor was covered with dry marsh grass and grey wool rugs. At the end lay a massive bed of sheepskins and drachen leather. At the other end, freestanding racks were hung with drying plants, cured leather, and what looked like strips of drachen jerky. The whole place smelled of stew, smoke, basil and thyme. Wow, page 303. It, isn't that just delightful? It is, it is. This is when, like, Rick does pull me back in. Like, his descriptions are yeah. of things. When he does describe things, because he doesn't always do it in the detail that I would like him to do in certain areas, it is beautifully well mm -hmm. done. And also, if like, even though it is cosy, it also gets, this is why I, feel, I really want Rick to write horror. I think he'd be a perfect horror author. Oh yeah. my gosh, yes. Like, I, I don't read horror, and I would read the heck read out that. of a horror book written by Rick Riordan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just looking at how this is described, he's saying it's cozy and describing it with warm words, mm -hmm. but you can make this really cold really easily, and I think he would do it perfectly. Like you were saying, obviously, with the Cupid part that we had before as well, mm -hmm. that feels horror-like. Like, he shows the yeah. potential. But um, I don't think he's brave enough at the moment, but I think I hope he will do it. <laughs> Because, like, horror is so hard. Yeah, if he continues to write a book, you know, one book a year every year until, you know, he'll hit horror eventually. <laughs> yeah. I also think it's kind of adorable that this entire time they were in this, like, sweet little respite, Annabeth is just being yes. so sassy. She is so over it. Annabeth would like to speak to the manager. <laughs> Annabeth, Annabeth wants to speak to your superior, please. She is so sick of it, sick of trudging through Tartarus with her dying boyfriend, and she's just like, fix him. Fix him now. Can you do it? Can you even do it? Or are you just like a dumb little untalented baby, huh? Um, Now, please? And pretty quickly, Domison is like, oh yeah, sure, I can fix it. And Percy then just has to rest for a bit. So structurally, this is like genius because it gives us this chance, this breathing space to just sit for a while. And Domison yeah. says, hey, you know, it gets pretty boring down here in Tartarus, will you tell me a story about your life? And <laughs> now we just all like gasped and, and grabbed our heart here. <laughs> it's so tender to, to get to this part of the book after everything that we went through, just after coming out of this awful retelling of our lives with the cursed demons and yeah. remembering all of the worst things we've ever done, the violences we've done unto people. Annabeth, as and we as the readers, we get this opportunity now to remember all the good stuff yes. and to tell the story the way she wants to tell it. They're resting, they're healing, they're reflecting. Yes, this is like, the it's so important. To, like not only 
certainly have this break tonally and in the pacing of the book, but also to juxtapose it, as you were saying, you need to reflect and decompose all of those stories about uh, the wrongs that they've committed to people in order for us to proceed. Like, we need them to actually think about this beyond the level of like, oh shit, this is scary, and move on to like a synthesis, I think. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And this is the thing, I can't, I can't remember if this was in it, because like, I read it last night, so it should be fresh in my mind, but I have completely forgotten. Do we actually hear her tell the story or like bits of the story? Yeah, I think it's mostly descriptions of her telling the story uh, in her own head. Okay, that's slightly the disappointing part, I would say, because like I would have loved to hear her perspective on yeah. the story. Because obviously, we've heard it through Percy's perspective, like the whole yeah. Percy Jackson and the Olympians. I would have loved to have heard some of it. This is very from true. Her point of view of like Percy being an idiot and stuff. If we get the TV show version of this, if we get this far, like this is the bottle episode. This is your. Avatar The Last Airbender, Fire Island Players. Like, you need to <laughs> absolutely pause, yeah, yeah, yeah. take the time, get the actress into the voice recording studio, you know? Oh, yeah. No, 100%. <laughs> Either that or, like, in... Oh, it'd be, like, the Storm episode in Avatar, you know, when, like, Ang is telling his story of, like, how he ran away and we're seeing... Yeah! Yes, yes, yes. But getting that from Annabeth, like, telling about her version of events of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, but obviously shortened down, because... Although, if I'm honest, I would love to get read a book... Not written by Rick, probably. I'd rather he like brought in like a female author to do an entire <laughs> Percy Jackson and the Olympians from Annabeth's point of view. I know there's a Wattpad fiction of Annabeth's point of view of the Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, which is very, very good. <laughs> I would recommend. Continuing to talk about this reflection scene, like structurally, I'm not sure if it hits for you guys the same way, but like we've had other rest scenes in the first series. We referred to them as like the, the campfire chats, the fireside, the fireside chats. chats. But this one really hits different. And maybe it's because we're in Tartarus and it feels almost like purgatory, like we're in the limbo. Not to like bring this in, but it's definitely gives me serious King's Cross in the Deathly Hollows. Bring it back. Yeah, that no, blinding absolutely. white space. Like we're in this super otherworldly location in Tartarus in this weird cozy cabin here that then launches us into the final third of the book. Mm. The scene that's like getting us ready yeah. for loss, for death, that we don't know who's dying yet or how this story is going to end, but we're coming to the finale. Yeah, you're, you're very right. The pause is so much heavier with this. Maybe it's because we're in Tartarus. The fact that Damison is asking for a story, like at this point, as we're reading through this, not that there's no utility to the visit, because obviously we're here because Percy needs to be brought back from basically death. But their interaction, there's no utility to it. It really is just that Damison like, is interested to hear about them. And like almost no one in the series is genuinely just ever asking, tell me about yourself. And this is not because we need to beat this dragon or like, I don't know, solve this puzzle or something. Yeah, it hits different. This reminds me, my first cultural analogy was not um, King's Cross, but um, Dagobah in episode five of Star Wars. Oh, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Mostly visually, but also like the type of respite that it provides in the broader um, surroundings, in the penultimate work, in the... Um, uh, yeah. I do that. love when Carter makes a Star Wars reference. It feels very special. I don't know if I do, but um, <laughs> I have been watching Star Wars Vision, so right. it's for better or for worse top of mind. Yeah, for sure. There's a couple other things I want to bring up 
um, from this POV. One is the way that Annabeth doesn't like canonically get Nico at all is so weird and doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. There's this quote. She thought about what the Adai had said, how Nico D'Angelo had been the only person to visit Bob in the Palace of the Underworld. Nico was one of the least outgoing, least friendly demigods Annabeth knew, yet he'd been kind to Bob. By convincing Bob that Percy was a friend, Nico had inadvertently saved their lives. Annabeth was wondering if she would ever figure that guy out. And it just feels so violent from Rick, yeah. considering everything we just went through. It makes so no sense. Like, Annabeth is a person who knows and understands people. Like, yeah, and they're, they're one of She those knows things. and understands people. Annabeth is not going to care, also, if you, like, summon an army of the dead. Like, that's not going to be a sticking point for her. She's too, she's too no-nonsense utilitarian for that. Like, I, it doesn't make sense and to so me. She, she thinks with strategies as well. The fact that she yes. thinks with strategies, she knows that Nico is an asset. He is someone that you want to be involved with because he's incredibly he valuable. strong and brilliant. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. Like, strong, exists, thoughtful, yeah. and like knows when to shut up. Like that's that's her ideal Yeah, yeah. There is also another part that doesn't feel Annabeth-y to me. And it isn't like nearer at the end of the section where like she realizes that like she needs Bob and the giant and like they are the foes bearing arms at the doors of death. Like she comes to that conclusion. But her way to try and to get him to understand where she's coming from and stuff like that, it wasn't as strong as I was expecting it to be. Like, it felt really hollow, the way in which she kind of went about explaining the situation to him. Come hold on, where is the section? I actually uh, really like I, these I really last couple pages. That. She says, there is another destination. Look at me. Remember my face when you're ready. Come find me. Like, oh my that's God. so epic. It is. I will yeah. give, yeah. Especially, yeah. no, I, I think that what you're saying is true in the sense that most of Annabeth's characterization is such that, like, she would respond to this by laying out a plan. Like, this is how it's different yeah. with the dragon this time. But I think that particularly when we just oppose this, not to put too fine a point on it, against the curse storyline that we just came from, I think it really tracks for me that Annabeth would pause and say, like, wait, I need to, like, reevaluate the way that I am treating people around me. Like, I, I need to not look at everything as a mm. war that I must strategize and win and just recognize people as individuals and not tools. And, like, I, I feel like this is her moment of looking at Damascus and being like, maybe, like, at an earlier point in time, I would have told you exactly how to do this. Maybe at an earlier point in time, I would have tricked you into trying to help me but at this point like mm. i don't think i can do either of those things like i can't force you a person who's actually been like nice to us to basically die like i think you should but you should make that decision on your own no. i i was really moved by that <laughs> that i completely get i think the one thing this is is only a small thing but i would have liked like one thing from her to kind of give that extra boost to him of her saying something like I believe in you. I know you can do this. Like, give that fine and that be like her final bit. Like, I know you can do this. I believe in you. Right. No, I think what we'll do is basically read through this entire last chapter. We're doing a long reading. Yeah, Carter, we can split okay. it up. Um, I'll I'll start by yeah. opening up on page three twelve. We have Annabeth waking up here, hearing Bob and Damison talking, and wow, this scene it really gives me chills and and takes me to. I don't know if this is a memory or experience everyone had, but like waking up in the morning as a child and hearing my parents talking and that feeling of just being safe and like taken care of. And I don't want to cry. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> <read it. laughs> Annabeth woke staring at the shadows dancing across the hut ceiling. She hadn't had a single dream. That was so unusual. She wasn't sure if she'd actually woken up. As she lay there, Percy snoring next to her and small Bob purring on her belly, she heard Bob and Damison deep in conversation. You haven't told her, Damison said. No, Bob admitted. She's already scared. 
The giant grumbled. She should be. And if you cannot guide them past night? Damasen said night like it was a proper name. An evil name. I have to, Bob said. Why? Damasen wondered. What have the demigods given you? They have erased your old self, everything you were. Titans and giants. We are meant to be the foes of gods and their children, are we not? Then why did you heal the boy? Damasen exhaled. I have been wondering that myself. Perhaps because the girl goaded me, or perhaps I have found these two demigods intriguing. They are resilient to have made it so far. That is admirable. Still, how can we help them any further? It is not our fate. Perhaps, Bob said uncomfortably, but do you like our fate? What a question. Does anyone like his fate? I liked being Bob, Bob murmured, before I started to remember. Huh. There was a shuffling sound, as if Damasen was stuffing a leather bag. Damasen, the titan asked, do you remember the sun? The shuffling stopped. Annabeth heard the giant exhale through his nostrils. Yes, it was yellow, and when it touched the horizon, it turned the sky beautiful colors. I miss the sun, Bob said. The stars, too. I would like to say hello to the stars again. Stars, Damasen said the word as if he'd forgotten its meaning. Yes, they made silver patterns in the night sky. He threw something to the floor with a thump. Bah, this is useless talk. We cannot... In the distance, the Maonian Dracon roared. Percy sat bolt upright. What? Where? It's okay. Annabeth took his arm. <sighs> okay. Jeez. Wow. Oh wow. my gosh. The literature. The sun. Again, Rick, with the <laughs> literature. Do you like our fate? Do like, you like our fate? What What a dialectic oh. that was. We really should have traded off and done it. We could have dialogued it. <laughs> yeah. It's also like the way that they feel so safe in this moment. We've never seen Annabeth specifically be this safe in this moment this taken care of by yes. older people in her life literally the the giant and the titan are putting Kyron to shame exactly <laughs> like they are her caretakers right now and they feel so much like these uncles like uncle bob and uncle, uncle bob are just here to wake up before you and they and woke pack up pack your you. backpack and heal your boyfriend and send you on your way oh. to your field trip oh my god a new ship uncle dom and uncle bob are in love Oh yeah, they're, oh, they're the gay uncle. This ship is definitely wants. out there. Is it not out there? It must be. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I definitely got that vibe when I first read the books. Um, and a few days they're ago, gay uncles. Before recording, I put some feelers out to the Discord asking for if anybody could name this trope that we see here. And where we arrived with Quinn's help was like the "I'm too old for this" trope um, uh, that mm, Domison is saying yes. right now. It reminds me of Aberforth, Dumbledore, of Briary, sure, um, like Tony Stark in Endgame. Tony Stark in Endgame is right. That's true. This whole thing that like, oh, I can't do it anymore. I've done it and now I don't believe. But of course the heroes do eventually bring them around in the end and they come in clutch for the final battle. So let's close out this episode with a final exciting thick reading to launch us into the final third of this book. Okay. I'm going to read so much of this. Do it. Do it. Suddenly, Annabeth was struck by a thought so sharp and clear. It was like a blade from Athena herself. The prophecy of the seven, she said. Percy had already climbed out of bed and was shouldering his pack. He frowned at her. What about it? Annabeth grabbed Domison's hand, startling the giant. His brow furrowed. His skin was as rough as sandstone. You have to come with us, she pleaded. The prophecy says foes bear arms to the doors of death. I thought it meant Romans and Greeks, but that's not it. It means us. Demigods, a titan, a giant. We need you to close the doors. The dragon roared outside, closer this time. Domison gently pulled his hand away. No, child, he murmured. My curse is here. I cannot escape it. Yes, you can, Annabeth said. Don't fight the dragon. Figure out a way to break the cycle. Find another fate. Damison shook his head. 
Even if I could, I cannot leave the swamp. It is the only destination I can picture. Annabeth's mind raced. There is another destination. Look at me. Remember my face. When you're ready, come find me. We'll take you to the mortal world with us. You can see the sunlight and stars. The ground shook. The dragon was close now, stomping through the marsh, blasting trees and moss with its poison spray. Further away, Annabeth heard the voice of the giant Polybides, urging his followers forward. The sea god's son! He's close! Annabeth, Percy said urgently, that's our cue to leave. Davison took something from his belt. In his massive hand, the white shard looked like another toothpick, but when he offered it to Annabeth, she realized it was a sword, a blade of dragon bone, honed to a deadly edge with a simple grip of leather. One last gift for the child of Athena, rumbled the giant. I cannot have you walking to your death unarmed. Now go, before it's too late. Annabeth wanted to sob. She took the sword, but she couldn't even make herself say thank you. She knew the giant was meant to fight at their side. That was the answer, but Davison turned away. We must leave, Bob urged as a kitten climbed onto his shoulder. He's right, Annabeth, Percy said. They ran for the entrance. Annabeth didn't look back as she followed Percy and Bob into the swamp, but she heard Davison behind them, shouting his battle cry at the advancing dragon, his voice cracking with despair as he faced his old enemy yet again. I love this song. This is my favorite song. Turn it up. You can see the sunlight and the stars. You can know that she was listening to them when they were saying that. And like you said, Carter, it's like she knows that this is what has to happen. This is the prophecy, but she's not going to force it on them anymore. She just has to let it be Damasen's own decision. Yeah. I'm going to say, I I take back what I said. Hearing Carter read it aloud is like, I don't know what. (laughs) <laughs> fuck what i was saying i was so wrong i Yo, should jump out of my window harder reading out like, of pov is like is like a drug to me <laughs> honestly i take it back i just needed to hear it aloud apparently <laughs> i i'm just so excited to live in a world where this book exists even in spite of you know some rough and difficult chapters any final closing thoughts anything anyone wants to say here if you're ever writing a story about a queer character hire sensitivity reader <laughs> just in case and uh, if you want to become friends of the giant, ask them about the sun and the stars. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> Value the sun and the stars today. Value everyone. the sun and the stars today. Go check them out. Take your moment. If yeah. you feel like you need it, go to your giant swamp. Like, you know, like <laughs> Make your is, wow. cozy, cozy oh. giant swamp tent in the middle of Tartarus. You can find safety. Make your giant swamp. Make your planetarium tents <laughs> make it cozy find your peace but also like find a new faith yeah you know like <laughs> find a new faith there comes a time when your safety swamp cabin is enough and we need to push ourselves out there don't fight the dragon today yes find a new fate. don't fight the dragon today find a new fate yes period <laughs> all right well thank you so much for being here today as our guest fran for sharing in this vulnerable <laughs> difficult conversation it was a lot we really appreciate it, it. Is all good i'm glad to be here and while we're here, should we plug something else that all three of us are working on? <gasps> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, we can. We Woo-hoo! can. We can. Carter we can. is Let's looking confused because they've forgotten what it is. <laughs> but the three of us, along with Robert from the Damn Meme page slash Into the Riordanverse and Darian from Podcast of Poseidon, are working on a group project. And that group project is called Entering Storybrook, a Once Upon a Time podcast. And if you guys want updates on it, you can find the social media that's already set up at Storybrook Pod on Instagram and twitter because it's coming 
at the end of October. Woohoo! Yes, yes, it is! End of October, <laughs> timing on point. Wow. Incredible. Oh, yeah. Check us out. Um, just another project to help us <laughs> fill the void. Plug <laughs> us your other handles, Fran. If you want to listen to another Percy Jackson podcast, you can find The Best Damn Camp on all podcast platforms and on social media at Best Damn Camp Pod. Um, I also have my debut novel publishing next year Woo-hoo! in August yes, of do. 2022. So if you want updates for that, you can follow me at a dose of Fran on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And I'll be doing a cover reveal on my YouTube channel very, very soon. <laughs> the cover has been revealed Woo! to me. It is beautiful. Everyone, check out Fran's book and stay safe out there. Don't fight the Drake on today. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye all. <laughs>